The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to a special holiday edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court returns to the bench. The justices will hear nine oral arguments in the last two weeks of February. In the course of the next hour, we're going to take a look at some of the most important cases the justices will hear this month, as well as some of the other big cases pending at the court. But first, we'll start with DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, an Obama-era program which blocks the deportation of undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children. Last year, President Trump ended the program, a move that was defended by White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders at the time. The president's DACA decision brings us closer to a safer, fairer, and legal immigration system. Now that he has ended this unsustainable and unconstitutional program imposed by the previous administration, the president is calling on the men and women in Congress to fulfill their duty to the American people by truly reforming our immigration system for the good of all people. But after a California federal judge decided to temporarily ban President Trump from ending the DACA program, the fate of the so-called Dreamers is now in the hands of the Supreme Court. For more, I'm joined this hour by Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter, and Paul Smith, a professor at Georgetown Law School. So, Greg, tell us what the Trump administration is asking the Supreme Court to do. Well, in the DACA case, they're asking the Supreme Court to do something highly unusual, which is to directly review that ruling from a federal district judge and to say that the president has the authority to rescind the DACA program. Now, one thing that's interesting about this is that Oftentimes, when a, a federal judge will, will issue a nationwide injunction the way this district judge did, uh, an administration will immediately go to court for a stay of that ruling. The Trump administration hasn't done that. And what that means is they are actually complying with this ruling and they are accepting renewal applications from uh, uh, people whose DACA status was about to expire and, and who could be subject to deportation. Uh, but they're asking the Supreme Court to jump in and give a definitive ruling by the end of June on whether the president ultimately can rescind this program. Paul, any idea why they decided to skip the appellate court or to ask for a hold on the court's order? Well, the reason they didn't ask for a hold on the court's order, I think, is they don't really want DACA to, to disappear. They want to have a legislative fix, and in the meantime, they probably don't want a lot of have headlines of, of individual uh, sympathetic people being deported. Uh, and why they jumped the, the, the queue and went past the Court of Appeals up to the Supreme Court is an interesting question. Uh, it is a very unusual procedure, procedural situation for them uh, to do that. I'm not sure. Do, and, and how do you think the court will react? Well, I guess my sense is that they are likely to be fairly uh, uh, sympathetic to the to the administration and think this is a Supreme Court issue. So, if I had, if I was a betting man, I would say that the court will probably take the case. 
And Greg, what's your feeling on it? Well, I might take that bet from Paul. Uh, <laughs> only because it, it, it is such an unusual, well, not only because, I mean, first of all, as we, as we both said, this is really a highly unusual procedure. And the times the Supreme Court has done it, it skipped the Federal Appeals Court, have, have either it tended to be either things where the urgency and importance was, was very obvious, like the Nixon tape, tapes case or the uh, steel seizure case with, with President Harry Truman, or where they were already committed to deciding the issue and they just needed a particular case to, uh, to, to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, this case does not seem to fit either of those parameters. Uh, the government, uh, I mean, the, the court is very deferential to the Solicitor General as a matter of course, and that may make the difference. And, and Paul could end up being right. I wouldn't be stunned either way. But there is a very much an uphill climb that the administration ha- has to, has to uh, 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 get over to get the Supreme Court to agree to do this uh, very unusual thing. And, and keep in mind also, we're talking about a very compressed time frame. I mean, it's later than usual in the term for the court to agree to take up any case, much less one where they skip the appeals court. Paul, the court has so many controversial issues that affect society this year. Are they ready to take on another one? Oh, well, they, I think they like to uh, to take on the issues that affect society. That's kind of the role they've adopted. And uh, the court has not been uh, timid about doing that in all kinds of areas, as you say. The, the cases uh, keep piling up there. So I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised to see them want to take on one more. But Greg may be right that given that they haven't uh, sought a stay and that, they, that they, it's, it's a little harder to make the, the case that it's an emergency that the court should make room for. Greg, if you had to pick one case this term, what would you say is the most high-profile case? Well, there's, there's the most high-profile high and there's the most important, and they may not be the same thing. <laughs> um, high-profile may well be the, the masterpiece cake shop cake that the Supreme Court has already heard arguments in and uh, could decide any time. It probably will be a little later in the term, but in theory they could decide it any time. That's the one where you have the, the baker in Colorado – who uh, uh, makes wedding cakes but doesn't want to make them for same-sex weddings. He turned a couple down. The uh, Colorado Civil Rights Commission said he was in violation of a law there that bans discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation at at places that do business with the public. Um, the, The court heard arguments in it in the fall, and it was really one of those where, and, and Paul may, may have a different view, I'm not comfortable predicting how that case is going to come out. It seemed very closely divided, and in particular, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who you would expect to be in the middle of, of, of these issues, um, uh, you know, was asking questions of both sides. You, on, on one side, you have a free speech argument by the, the baker, and that's the kind of thing that Justice Kennedy is often very sympathetic towards. On the other side, you have anti-discrimination and gay rights. And he, of course, you know, as much as anybody, more than anybody, has been the champion of gay rights on the Supreme Court, wrote the gay marriage ruling uh, a couple years ago. So, um, you know, that's one of these cases that has garnered a lot of attention and, uh, from my standpoint, could come out either way. Well, Paul, I'll be asking you that question as we go on in the program. That's Paul Smith, professor at Georgetown Law School, and Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. Coming up, we're going to look ahead to this month's arguments, beginning with a case that will determine the future of mandatory union fees for public sector workers. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Last year, the Supreme Court justices deadlocked four to four on a case that could decide whether five million government workers could refuse to pay union fees. Now, with the addition of Neil Gorsuch, the court has decided to hear the case again. It's now facing new scrutiny from the White House. Once again, I'm joined by Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter, and Paul Smith, a professor at Georgetown Law School. Greg, why don't you describe the case? So the case is one the Supreme Court has actually heard before. Uh, The central question is whether a public sector worker can be required uh, to pay what some people call agency fees, some people call fair share fees, which are basically the cost of of representation by the union uh, uh, for purposes like collective bargaining, uh, not for political purposes. The Supreme Court has already said uh, workers don't have to pay for for, – uh, a truly political work by the union. Uh, there's a, a worker in Illinois, a, a public sector worker, who says, I don't agree with my union. I don't want to have to uh, pay any money here. Um, and the reason I say the Supreme Court has heard it, is heard it before, uh, back before Justice Scalia passed away, the court heard arguments and seemed on the verge of saying that, that public sector workers do have that First Amendment right. Then Justice Scalia died, and the court was not able to resolve that case. Now the issue is back at the Supreme Court. Uh, and by all indications, the person who will decide the, decide the answer is the newest justice, Neil Gorsuch. Let's talk about the arguments here, Paul. What is the argument? The Trump administration called on the Supreme Court to let millions of public sector workers refuse to pay union fees, which shifted the position of the federal government during the Obama era. So tell us what their argument is. Well, the the argument, uh, uh, it is an interesting flip of position by the Solicitor General in this case compared to the the past. The argument is that requiring a payment of fees to the union is uh, to require somebody to be complicit in an institution they don't like, uh, that they they should have a First Amendment right of immunity from having to do that. Uh, And, you know, this is a principle that exists in various places in the law, it it is an unusual application of it here because these are people who voluntarily take a job as a public sector worker, and the employer is saying, I really would like to have a single representative of uh, the workers in this this bargaining unit to negotiate with and to handle grievances, and I'd like everybody who gets the benefit of that to have to pay the freight that that, that goes to, to support that institution, that union. And so... Uh, there's a pretty, there are a lot of pretty good arguments that it's not a, not a very serious First Amendment claim. On the other hand, it's pretty clear there are five justices who think it is and are going to say it is, and that's going to be a very important loss uh, by the public sector unions. Let's talk about the union's position in this, Greg. They're they're very, very adamant about this case because if they lose those union fees, they still have to go on and they're still negotiating for different things that people who aren't paying the fees are getting the benefit of. Right. And and one argument you hear them make is is the free rider argument. You know, they say, um, at least as it's set up under state law, look, we uh, the union is going to represent everybody and it's going to do things that are going to benefit even workers who don't want to pay pay the fees. And if a worker can take those benefits and not uh, pay the fees, then he or she becomes a free rider. And um, more and more people may want to do that, uh, get the benefits without paying the cost. 
And that would undermine the ability of the union to, to do its job of representing people. The other big argument the union makes, and actually probably the, the first one, is that um, there's a there's a, a pre-existing Supreme Court decision uh, from uh, 1977 called Abood that says unions can uh, require workers to to pay these fees, and uh, you know so they are arguing stare decisis, the notion that um, unless there's a really good reason, the court should not overturn its past decisions. So, Paul, how do the justices who want to rule against this rule, you know, that union fees do not have to be paid, how do they get around the issue of Abood? Well, they've signaled in several cases uh, in the past that they think Abood is a weak precedent, that it's wrongly decided, uh, and I think they're going to flatly overrule it in this case. Uh, And the argument is that uh, there's no real separation between the political activities of the union and the sort of union activities of the union in the public sector, because when a union is negotiating for higher wages or higher benefits, that is a form of advocacy to the government. After all, the government is the employer. And so when you, you are requiring people to pay the cost of that kind of, of advocacy, you're basically requiring them to uh, advocate issues that they, they may disagree with. They may think that the government shouldn't be spending more money uh, on wages and benefits for its workers or that, that something of that kind. There's no real distinction between the two uh, sort of political activities and, and more mundane run-of-the-mill union activities. Greg, the court split four to four when this was uh, involving the California teachers. So it was along partisan lines. Is there any doubt in anyone's mind that Neil Gorsuch will will side with the conservatives on this? Well, well let me j- j- just clarify. We we presume it was along uh, ideological lines on the court. There, I mean, just based on the argument, what, what justices have said in past cases. But uh, when they issued that four to four decision, it didn't tell us who 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 was on what side of the case. Um, but to directly answer your question. Um, you know, there's every. I mean, this particular issue has not come come before Neil Gorsuch, but uh, I think everybody involved in this issue would be very, very surprised if uh, he did anything other than uh, do what what Paul is suggesting he will do and 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 vote to overrule Abood and to say that public sector workers do have a First Amendment right. That's just sort of based on everything we know about him as as a jurist from his time uh, on the Tenth Circuit and and his limited time on the Supreme Court. It's it, it seems very very likely he will vote that way. And indeed, uh, the the Abood decision will be overturned. Paul, a very broad question, but what will this do to, if, if the court rules, as both of you think they will, what would this do to unions in this country? How big a blow would it be? Well, there's a lot, a lot of uncertainty about how, how big a blow it would be. Some would say, look, there's a lot of states already where they're not allowed to charge this fee and the unions are still operating. Uh, and they'll just go on the, the way they, that, that way in, in the states where the fee has been paid in the past. There's also a, a separate question of whether it might ever extend into the private sector. The, the, the arguments are somewhat complicated about whether or not the constitutional argument could be made by an employee in the private sector. Uh, and so we'll have to wait and see uh, what the consequences are. There may also be a workarounds that, that the, uh, that the uh, states who want to support the unions can do, which is to say basically subsidize the unions directly rather than uh, through the wages, taking something out of the wages of the workers. That's Paul Smith, professor at Georgetown Law School, and Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. Coming up, more on this month's Supreme Court arguments with a look at a case that could forever change the credit card business. This is Bloomberg. 
Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Later this month, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in a case that could shake up the credit card business. American Express was accused of getting rid of competition by prohibiting merchants from steering customers to cards with lower fees. For more on this potentially momentous case, I'm joined once again by Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter, and Paul Smith, a professor at Georgetown Law School. And once again, Greg, I'll ask you to give me the facts of the case. Well, as you said, this is about uh, a, a policy that American Express has that um, uh, says that merchants cannot explicitly give um, customers an incentive to to uh, uh, use a card that that has a lower fee. So, in other words, uh, a merchant cannot, under this American Express policy, say if you use this this card that charges us less. We will give you, you know, a two percent discount on on your sales price. A group of states and the Obama administration sued American Express, and originally Visa and Mastercard were sued for the for similar uh, policies. Uh, Visa and Mastercard settled. And the core issue for the Supreme Court is whether you look at this this activity, this this, this policy, just by looking at um, what merchants have to pay. Or, as American Express argues, do you also look at the end result on consumers? Uh, American Express says what we're actually doing is um, uh, we're taking some of these higher fees that we get from merchants, and we are using them to give customers other incentives, our customers other incentives. And uh, so it's really just a question of how you analyze this sort of what's called a dual market uh, in an antitrust context. Paul, what do the merchants want to be able to do? Do they want to be able to say, oh, we'll give you this much less if you use a Discover card instead of American Express? I mean, how would they actually give this benefit that they want to to the customers? Well, there's a variety of ways in which they could steer people toward using the lower-cost card uh, by making uh, making the price lower or by giving a special checkout place for those who use certain cards and not other cards, make it more efficient for people to pay. Uh, there, there are very subtle or, or very direct ways in which they could subsidize people uh, and, and push them in the direction of using something where the, where the fee is lower for the merchant. So what's interesting here is that the court is interested in, in a case this complicated because it's under the rule of reason. There's a million factors. It's it's not the sort of thing they usually like to wade into. The argument, is, as Greg said, the American Express is, is making is we, we may charge the merchants a little bit more, but we have a different business model. We have a premium card that gives all sorts of benefits to consumers, and you need to look at what they call the two-sided price, the, 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 the price as it relates to consumers and the price as it relates to merchants and our overall uh, package of costs and benefits that we give to the overall marketplace. Uh, is not a restraint of trade. It has benefits as well as burdens, and you should allow this model to continue. June, I just uh, p- point out that the tech industry is is watching this case very closely because this sort of dual market uh, applies uh, in a, a lot of contexts. And you can imagine, for example, um, you know, an online merchant who is dealing both with um, uh, the the ultimate maker of the product and the consumers. Um, the, there is a, a a lot of concern that the court. Uh, might make it harder to sue uh, a lot of uh, technologically advanced companies. Now, 
Paul, what seems unusual is the Justice Department also sued American Express, but it didn't join the appeal to the Supreme Court. Is there a reason behind that? I'm not sure what the reason for that is. They filed a brief, though, on the merits and uh, supporting the appeal, so I'm not sure it makes a difference. Greg, do you think it makes any difference? It it, um, may not make any difference in the ultimate disposition of the case. It was certainly intriguing. When the the administration did not file its own cert petition, one thought, hey, the the chances of the court taking this case up are less. Well, the court decided to take it up anyway. Uh, You know, that may have been a function uh, in part of... Uh, when that decision was made by the the Trump administration, they didn't have a confirmed head of the antitrust division at the Justice Department. They didn't have a confirmed solicitor general. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of decisions that you have to make when you're a new new administration. And it may have been that they weren't quite uh, ready to uh, have this sort of issue up up before them at the Supreme Court. I'm entirely speculating at this point. (laughs) Um, But it it, it is not... uh, Certainly not unheard of. In fact, it often happens that that uh, an administration, a solicitor general, will say, you know, we think the lower court got it wrong, but um, it's not important enough for the Supreme Court to take it up. That's sort of the stance they took. But now that the Supreme Court has taken it up, they are defend. They they are uh, saying that the lower court decision should be overturned. I'm speaking with Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Store and Paul Smith, a professor at Georgetown Law School. Coming up, we're going to check in on some of this term's most notable Supreme Court cases. This is Bloomberg. When is the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster? Amid the chaos? Or is the best time, perhaps, today? Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm June Grosso. You're listening to a special President's Day edition of Bloomberg Law. We've been talking about some of the biggest cases facing the Supreme Court, which goes back into session tomorrow. One of the most important cases facing the nine justices this term involves a bakery in Colorado where Jack Phillips, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, refused to make a wedding cake for Charlie Craig and David Mullins, a gay couple. He argued that he's a cake artist and that making a cake against his religious beliefs violates his First Amendment right as an artist. But David Cole, legal counsel for the couple and the national legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union, says the requirement to serve everyone without discrimination overrules personal expression. The fact that somebody objects to the message that equal treatment sends doesn't give him a First Amendment right to opt out of the basic requirement that businesses treat all their customers equally. For more on this potentially landmark case, I'm once again joined by Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter, and Paul Smith, a professor at Georgetown Law School. Well, we spoke about this a little bit earlier, but Paul, what is your take on how the court's going to rule in this? It's a tough one. Well, it is a hard one to predict. I think most people would say it's going to come down to Justice Anthony Kennedy. Uh, and in the argument, he seemed to be somewhat annoyed with both sides. He felt <laughs> that the uh, uh, the argument that stores should be able to discriminate against uh, gay people was, was offensive. On the other hand, he didn't like the way he perceived the Colorado um, Anti-Discrimination Commission as having uh, kind of an anti-religious uh, um, bias, or at least one member of the commission, he, he quoted something that was said and he didn't like that. He sort of uh, probably wishes he could find a way to rule for both sides or against both sides at this point. 
this is certainly the case that a lot of people know about. I think of all the Supreme Court cases, it's the one that people even know the name of the bake shop. Let's turn to something that may be important in the elections, and that's the the case of Ohio purging its voter rolls. And we've spoken about this a little before. Greg, tell us a little about this. Yeah, so this is a, this is a case um, that the court has already heard arguments in. Uh, it has to do with Ohio's system for purging people from its voter rolls. And there's uh, a federal law that says uh, states should try to call their voter voter databases to get uh, you know to keep them up to date. But one thing they can't do is they can't remove people for failure to vote. So what Colorado, uh, excuse me, what Ohio does under its system, which which critics say is the strictest in the, in the nation, is if you don't vote once, they in an election they will send you a notice, and then if you don't send back that notice saying, yeah, I still live here, um, and then you don't vote for the next two elections, Ohio will purge you from their their roles. And the, the, the core question, it's a statutory question, not a constitutional one, although it feels like a, a constitutional type issue. It's a question under this federal statute whether that is removing people from the roles because of their failure to vote. Paul, you represented the challengers in this case, and surprisingly, Justice Stephen Breyer seemed to be siding with the conservatives on the court, and he gave you quite a hard time with his questions. How did you handle that? Well, you know, uh, when you're up there trying to make a point and one justice is uh, giving you a lot of pushback and kind of interfering, you never like it. Uh, and it, this was he was a justice that I, going in probably would have expected maybe to be more supportive, so that was a little bit upsetting. But in the end, I think I was able to explain to him uh, that the, the kind of notice that Ohio sends provides no real information about the underlying issue, which is, have, has this person left the state or, or the county? Has this person moved away? Uh, they send a forward notice, a notice that goes to wherever the person is, 80% of the people don't return it. And when that happens, the state doesn't know anything about whether the person has moved away or not. And so in the end, I think uh, the answer in the case is that the only reason they have to think this person has moved away is they're non-voting. And that's the one thing they can't rely on under the statute. It is a, it is a purge for non-voting, and that's banned by law. What do you see as the implications of this case? I mean, it will it just relate to Ohio? Will we see other states expanding their purge, their, their voting laws in this way if, if uh, Ohio wins? You know, the, there are a lot of states, to be frank, these days, who are looking for ways to sort of trim the electorate in, in, in a little bit to to keep the uh, one party in power. It's usually the Republicans that are doing it these days. And so if the court says this is okay, uh, we, it's pretty clear that it has a partisan impact that most of the people that are, vote only sporadically tend to be poorer, tend to be minority voters, as Justice Sotomayor pointed out in the argument. And so you may see other states copy, copycatting this as a way to gain just another slight edge in, in who's voting and, and, and affect outcomes of elections. Another one of the issues that seems to be going through our society over and over again is our privacy protections and digital privacy protections. And another one of the cases that has garnered a lot of interest is the Carpenter case. Greg, tell us about that case and well, we all learned about cell phone pinging from that case. Yeah, so the, so this is a case um, about uh, something that that everybody's phone does, which is when you are out somewhere 
uh, and you make a call, you, that the phone connects to a nearby cell phone tower. And the information about that uh, is stored by the, uh, the, the phone company. And so you can imagine if you're out a lot and you're making a lot of calls, the, the phone company gets a lot of information about you. And in, in this case, uh, it's, it's a criminal case involving a man who uh, was uh, on trial for taking part in a series of armed robberies. Uh, the, just, the prosecutors got information about his location, which happened to, to uh, uh, coincide very nicely with, with where the armed robberies were taking place. And it got it under a federal statute that doesn't require prosecutors to get a search warrant to 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 show uh, the probable cause uh, that you you need as a prosecutor to to get a search warrant, and uh, the question for the Supreme Court is first of all whether this information about where your cell phone was when you were were making a call and where you were is something that is protected by the Fourth Amendment, and if so, uh, whether uh, it, it is enough that. They had to make a little bit of a lesser showing under this this federal statute, something lesser than probable cause, whether that is adequate to meet the requirements of the Fourth Amendment. Paul, most of the justices were expressing concerns about privacy rights. Sonia mm-hmm. Sotomayor, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, certainly uh, was very, very explicit about the problems that, that can happen if you have too much of this kind of intrusion. And tell us about how they've norm they've often ruled in cases involving privacy. Well, justices in recent years have been very strong on protecting uh, privacy from the kinds of invasions that occur with new technology. We had a GPS case where the government took the position that they could put a GPS device on your car for months at a time and record everywhere you drive, and the court said uh, that was a pro- that was a Fourth Amendment problem. Uh, here, the real issue is the so-called third-party doctrine that when you have given all this information to a third party here, the telephone company, you no longer have any Fourth Amendment protection from it, that, that that's why the warrant requirement and the probable cause requirement shouldn't apply, says the government. Uh, and Justice Sotomayor in that prior GPS case is already on record as suggesting that we should rethink that doctrine, that says virtually everything about us is in the hands of third parties these days. Uh, we need to have more protections of all the, that data, all that, all those materials that, are, that the Googles of, of the world uh, have and the telephone companies have on us. Uh, and I, I, So I think the court will again um, move in the direction of greater privacy protection, responding to technological developments here that, that threaten privacy. So, Greg, turning to another topic, the uh, the Supreme Court has agreed to decide whether law enforcement officials conducting a criminal investigation can demand data held overseas by Microsoft and other tech companies. This is certainly another high stakes clash over digital privacy. Tell us a little more about it. Yeah, this is a case that the court is going to be arguing in the sitting that is that is just about to begin. Um, and it, interestingly, it, it also has to do with the same law that's called the Stored Communications Act that was an issue in the, in the cell phone case. When a company like, in this case, Microsoft, if you set up a, a, an Outlook account with, with Microsoft and you set it up in a foreign country, country Microsoft's policy is um, we will store all that information that you're about to start sending us uh, somewhere near where you set it up, uh, in this case, Ireland. And the question is whether this federal law, this U.S. law, the Stored Communications Act, 
lets the federal government get access to that information, even though it's it's all the way in, in Ireland. And the, the government essentially argues. Um, First, you don't know what the nationality of this person is who 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 uh, set up that account. And second of all, we're not asking anybody in Ireland to do anything. Uh, the folks in Redmond, Washington, where Microsoft is headquartered, uh, can just you know uh, click a, click a mouse a couple times and get the information that we need. So it's it's really a question of is this information actually overseas and outside the, the the reach of federal authorities, or is it uh, domestic and therefore covered by this federal law? Paul, how do you think the court will react to this? That Stored Communications Act is, is from 1986, and it certainly is different from the era that we live in now. Right. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I think everybody would agree this is an issue on which Congress needs to weigh in and update the, the law. Uh, there have been efforts to get Congress to do that so far unsuccessful. But uh, what, what the court may very well figure is we should figure out the answer here that, that is most likely to get the, the Congress to come in and do its job on this. You know, I'm not entirely sure which way they'll go on this one. Uh, it is an interesting po- uh, problem because the, the electrons are over there in Ireland, uh, wherever this stuff is stored. Uh, but as, as Greg says, they can, uh, they can get the stuff with a couple of keystrokes. I want to thank you both for spending this hour with me. That's Paul Smith, professor at Georgetown Law School, and Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. That's it for this special holiday edition of Bloomberg Law. You can listen to Politics, Policy, Power, and Law every weekday at 12 p.m. Wall Street time. Thanks to our producer, David Sutcherman. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.